I gave up trying to uh, take control of the remote when we had our third girl, and uh, I've just given up to watching HGTV, Cooking Network. Last night, I sat there with my children as they discovered Disney+. Plus. My children are 20 and 17, by the way, um, so we watched Ratatouille and all these wonderful, very manly shows. Maybe the possibly most manliest show that I might get to see coming on this network is the show Fixer Upper. Now, we love Fixer Upper because it's Chip and Joanna Gaines. They're born-again believers. They talk about Jesus. They do great things. And yet, I'm reminded of how little masculinity I have when I watch Chip Gaines do his stuff. Chip Gaines will take a shack, and the next thing you know, the Biltmore House has appeared from it. And everything, for some reason, has to have barn doors and shiplap on it. You know, I'm, I'm kept waiting for, you know, the shiplap interior of the refrigerator that they're going to have. But the part that I realize that I can do is when they say, hey, everyone come and help out today. Today is demolition day. I could do that. And as a matter of fact, there have been several times where I've done things like World Changers or Habitat for Humanity or whatever, where we've had a day where the team comes in. And they say, oh, hey, we're not really building anything today. Today is demolition. And I go, ah, I was created for this. And so they tell us things like, we need to take this wall down, we need to remove this, we need to pull this back, we need to rip up this floor. And if you set me in there, my mother at four years old could have told you, he will be destined for this later on when he gets older. I'm great at that. And the funny thing about it is, if you've ever watched one of these fixer-upper shows, it's the fixer-upper, it's always this, they buy the house for 35 cents... Their all-in budget is $10,000, and then at the end of it, they have a $400,000 home. Now, I don't know if that's y'all. It doesn't work. George Bolter, you ever do some loans like this in the world? Yeah, it doesn't really work. Kim Turner, if you have any of those, call her up. She'll be glad to list it for you. But it takes no time whatsoever to do the demolition. Like, no time. They're like, today's demolition day. And they take this house, completely demo everything, and then for the next, like, six months, tediously, they're working every day. Demolition and destruction takes no time, but building is a whole different ball of wax. Tedious, time-consuming, expensive, costly. And Psalm 127 is a song about building, and is a song about guarding, and it is a song about growing. And yet, the song is the psalm of Solomon. Now, Solomon wrote this, but we think that it probably gained more prominence and maybe more excitement built around it. Notice where it is. It's after Psalm 126, which is a psalm after the post-exilic period when the exiles from Babylon had come back. They're rebuilding the wall. They're rebuilding the temple. And so you can imagine as Nehemiah's time comes along and people are rebuilding the wall, people are rebuilding the temple, they're having literally to have a spear in one hand and a sword, I mean, or maybe even a shovel or a, or a hammer in the next hand because they're having to guard the wall and guard the temple while they're building it. And so you can see that it would come to more prominence, come to more, maybe more, some more attention showed onto it during that period. Now, I must confess, this is a hard psalm for me to appreciate the author for, because in this case, it's written by Solomon, who wrote these words of wisdom, but didn't necessarily follow them himself. You know, it, Solomon's children didn't turn out the right way. His, his father's kids didn't necessarily turn out the right way. And yet, he may be excused because every single one of us are guilty of speaking the truth and speaking wisdom, but not following even our own advice. So in this psalm, we get building we get guarding, and we get growing. 
And if you're one of these, if you're someone here this morning that's like, well, I don't have children, or I'm not able to have children, or I'm not old enough to have children, or my children are gone, you need to realize that in this text, there's a Jewish play on words with, in Hebrew with the word house and household. House and household, unless the Lord builds a house, or unless the Lord builds a household. And if we were to think back to David's conversation with the Lord and with Samuel, David prays and he says, you know, I'm going to be the one that will build the Lord a house. And he says, he says it to Samuel, and Samuel says, go ahead and do what you're going to do. But then the Lord says to Samuel, you go back and you tell David, no, you're not going to be the one to build me a house. But what does the Lord say to David? But I will raise up in your household one who will take the throne. And so this house and household are in there together. And so when we talk about children this morning in this text, we're not only talking about biological children, but we're also going to be talking about spiritual children, children of the faith. And if if you want to look at no clearer example of this, I would point you to Paul and Timothy in the New Testament where Paul even says to Timothy, who was a teenager at the time that Paul was discipling him, Paul writes to him and he says, Timothy, my son. And so it was not just the person that he was biologically raising, but each one of us, especially adults, we have those that the Lord has put in our path, put in our neighborhood, put in our church, that God has called us to raise up to know the truth, the love, and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we turn to the text real quick, we'll look at verses One, but we're going to do, you know, I'm going to do the typical pastor thing and we're going to refer to it as 1A and 1B. That's an old preaching trick so you can get way more mileage out of one verse. But let's look at verse 1A because it's the first half. Verse 1A, if you just want to take a little time later on and go to John 15.5. John 15.5, Jesus summarizes this in his own words where he would say, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And what he would say was, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless the Lord builds, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, building, building absolutely, what does that look like? First of all, that's part of what we as believers do. We build. We build the kingdom of God. We build. We work. We build one another up. We build. We work. We care for those. And we build up places of strength and refuge where there is none. We build up places of truth where there are none. And so to build, and what does that mean to build in the Lord or to build with the Lord. It means that the workers who are working submit to the will of God. They find their strength through the Lord and they find their purpose in the Lord. So they submit to the will of God, they find their strength through the Lord and their purpose is in the Lord. And the the essence of this is that God permeates every aspect of their project. God permeates every aspect of their work. Bob's going to talk to you this morning about God had better be in your work. Every moment, he's in it. God is in it. He's working through you, in you, and for you. And you are working in concert with him. And so in verses 1b, again, the second part. Now, if we think about this in the Jerusalem era of the post-Babylon exilic period, that sounded super theological, but the walls and the places where there were destruction, which was really everywhere, they were actually being guarded because Tobias and Sambalat, as we know in the time of Nehemiah, were coming and they were actually harassing the workers as they tried to rebuild Israel. And so part of it then, as well as you can imagine, you know, there are people that are guarding and working, but Solomon didn't know that. But what we would also realize was that later on, you know, after Solomon's time, the guards and the walls had been no match for the Babylonian army. And then, of course, later on, in, in, in the, almost the year 60, about 30 years after Christ's time, the walls would be no match for the Roman army, and they would tear it all down. 
So we've got to realize that guarding and building go hand in hand with the Lord, and we must never forget that we're at war. We're at war right now. Jesus spends so much time talking about the enemy, the devil. Paul spends so much time talking about the enemy, the devil. And we rely on God's strength, and we place our hope and trust in him to be our defender. So in verse 2, we come to this part where there's a little bit of a warning. Actually, it's a great warning, and it's a warning against overconfidence in our own efforts. A warning against overconfidence in our own efforts. Now, I'm going to talk about this in contemporary service, but I'm going to tell you why you can't trust in your own effort. You know why you can't trust in your own effort? I'm going to tell you a quick story. Sitting at my desk this past week on Wednesday, I'm, I'm working on a funeral, I'm working on youth, and I'm working on all this kind of stuff, and I'm chewing gum, as I have for the past 40 years of my life. And I bit my lip. I want you to think about that for a minute. I bit my own lip, and it bled. If I can't be trusted to not even bite my own lip while I chew gum, why on earth would I trust my own effort over the Lord's? Why would I ever do that? And so when this part where he talks about prayer, and in in the part we talk about this, this, what the Lord grants, we realize that the Lord in the Lord's prayer said, give us, Lord, our daily bread. And we need to realize that we don't trust in our own effort, but there is a divine dependence on God's provision. Divine provision for God's provision for us. And when he says later on, maybe you have the NIV, and it says, do you work for the bread of anxious toil? The idea of if you're not working in the Lord, through the Lord, and by his strength, you cannot enjoy the fruits of your labor. You feel like there's always something else that needs to be done. And therefore, even when you're home or even when there's a time of rest, you can't rest because you think to yourself, there's always something else could be done. I could have done it better. This could have been done more if I'd only done this. But the Lord grants rest. And the other part about this that you'll see in this text, in this verse, is that really there's kind of an understood part of, you know what, you can lay down and sleep because God is working even when you're resting. So in verse 3, we get to this part where we turn the corner and we get a children. Now, children, again, is also, you can interchange household for this. And we're talking about both children, physical and biological, and children, spiritual. And again, I would say, look at Paul and Timothy. But he says this, children are a gift from God. Now, the from is an incredibly important part. Uh, I have a good friend of mine uh, named Ricky, and Ricky has a framed coffee filter on his wall. It is framed because it is signed by his favorite record producer. You won't know the guy's name. The guy's name is Aaron Sprinkle, but he, he has produced all kind of crazy albums from different bands in the 90s. And so Ricky didn't have anything for him to sign when he saw him except for a coffee filter that he had to grab off the counter at a coffee restaurant. And the guy signed it, all the best to my friend Ricky Love Aaron. And it's now in a frame. Now, is the coffee filter precious? No. It's not what it is. It's who it's from. Now, when you apply that to children, it's not that kids are precious. They're not. No, kids are inherently precious, right? When we're in the room, in the delivery room, and if you're a mother, you're going, get this thing out of me. But if you're a father, you're going, this is amazing. And it's just incredible. You don't need anyone to tell you that children are precious and incredible and wonderful and amazing. And they're a gift from God. You know that inherently, but the fact that they come from from God makes it doubly true. And so he's reminding you, children are precious. And then in verse 4, he says, you raise them to love the Lord. Do you know what it means to raise up children? That means to get rid of them. Literally. You raise them up so they're not dependent on you, so they can do it on their own. You raise them up to know the truth. You raise them up to profess the truth and to live by the truth. 
And so you raise up the children, you raise them up to know the Lord, serve the Lord, serve in Christ's kingdom. And then if you think about it, children who know the truth, children who live in the truth, and children who serve in the kingdom are an asset to the kingdom. So before you think to yourself, well, I don't have children, or, or this, this isn't applied to me, or I'm too young, realize that this is also spiritual children. Every single one of you that takes time to teach Sunday school, takes time to shepherd a child, takes time to shepherd someone who's simply new in the faith, this is what you're doing. And then in verse 5, you need to understand that this verse has been misused a whole heck of a lot. Beware not to take this literally. Uh, we have heard, I've heard people that say, oh, you know, why do you have 18 children? Well, Psalm 127.5, what does that mean? I need to have a quiver full of children. Well, do you have a quiver? Yep, it's full. You know, and you can't even name all your children. That's fine if that's where God has led you, but you don't have to take this verse literally. If you realize that going back in time, children were God's retirement plan. Children were God's assisted living plan. Children were God's, you know, Medicare plan. The more children you had, the more chance you as an elderly person had for someone to take care of you. But if we see this even in a greater perspective of spiritual children, think about the household of God, which is the church. Isn't it our job as older believers to continue pouring in to coming up generations so that the household of God will continue to be strong, will continue to represent him, will continue to build the kingdom of God, and will continue to defend the truth of the gospel. What I love about this psalm is that it's so much about daily life where we really live. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking that at least some folks maybe come to church every week and they go like, there's so much that you guys talk about that doesn't seem to relate to my life. There are all these biblical heroes who are mighty like Samson or they're super godly like David who's a man after God's own heart or Jesus who never sinned or Paul who started the church. Well, that doesn't seem to compare to my regular life. Or you talk about these big theological ideas and principles, you know, like the Trinity or eschatology or whatever, and you're going like, what does that have to do with me? When you get to Psalm 127, all the way through it, it's about your daily life, what I called in my sermon title, the daily climb. It's about what you do every single day. So let me just tell you uh, six quick ideas that are in this psalm that I have experienced recently and am still experiencing. So number one, this psalm is about projects. Anybody get involved in projects? When I, get a, when I dive into a project, I want to get it done, right? So what are you in the middle of? You're trying to get it done. Or what have you recently finished? So I just cleaned out the attic. And uh, on Friday, like I'm sending pictures to my kids. I finished the attic. Look at this. Or before that, I replaced the... Uh, the, uh, the, the columns and the rails on my front porch. I finished a project, that's cool. Uh, the, the second area this psalm touches on is security. So how many of you, we, us are concerned about security, privately or for our nation? We have a video doorbell at our house for the first time we didn't have a year ago. So I just love it when some random guy pushes the doorbell and I could be in Hawaii visiting my family or I could be at my office and he thinks like nobody's there and I go hello can I help you and uh, so but we think about why do I have that it's for security right we want that added measure of knowing who's there this psalm is also about work and it's about why we work and how much we work and that's been a part of my life lately I just admitted to our elders how many hours a week I work and I will not admit it to you 
because it's too many. So, but we're having that conversation. Like, so what does that look like? So, and what is the right balance in terms of work? This psalm is about that. This psalm is about sleep. I think about sleep a lot, but not as much as I, not as much as I, more than I used to, because I've got this app on my phone that not only tells me how many hours I slept and how many, uh, how much of that was in deep sleep or whatever, but if you have this same app, I don't want to advertise the company, right? Now it grades my sleep every night. It gives me a number. So I realize I'm getting a D in sleep. My average is 74. So, like, that's terrible when your phone is telling you every day you flunk sleep again. And then it talks about children, and Pastor Paul and Mr. West have already talked about that. Linda and I have three children. It doesn't matter. Those of you who, when your children are grown, you know, like, you don't stop thinking about your children, and this psalm is about children. And the final topic it touches on is aging. So as Pastor Paul said, the end of this is, you know, really about your, your, what's going to happen to you when you get older. And in their world, it was the children who took care of you. Well, I'm getting older. I'm 63, right? And I'm thinking about that time because I'm, maybe it's my, my mom and Linda's mom or whatever. But I'm, who's going to be changing my depends when I get older, right? So you start thinking about this psalm talks about all of this stuff that we think about all the time. So what I did is I jotted down six, uh, a, a brief principle, a sentence about each one of those areas that is a lesson from Psalm 127. So if you like taking notes, this is your opportunity. If you don't, just listen for a little bit. But first of all, let's talk about projects. The lesson of Psalm 127 is you don't control the outcome. You might think that you do, but you don't control the outcome. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The people working on our organ are um, among the most organized. Uh, they had their timeline down to a T. They know how many hours it takes to do everything related to this. And then this year, uh, for the first time in, I think, decades, at least years, a very reliable supplier of one critical component, little magnets. Who knew organ pipes needed magnets? The guy died. Now, that's sad in itself, but it's just a reminder. Even the things that I think I have exactly down, and don't fear, we're still going to have organ music at Christmas, but it's like, it's just a reminder that even life and health, the projects that we do, I don't control the outcome. That's the lesson about projects in Psalm 127. The lesson about security vigilance will not provide it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. The point is probably not that different from the first one, 1A and 1B, as Paul said, or in Hebrew poetry, you get sort of parallel thoughts. But the bottom line is, this is another area where even the most experienced consultants will tell you, in a public group like this, we can work on security and we can even plan ahead to minimize the amount of damage or even death, but we can't ultimately control it. Unless the Lord stands guard over the city, the guards stand watch in, in vain. And then work. So the lesson of the psalm here about work is the key question is why. It's really not even how many hours you work. It's why do you work? So the psalm uh, uh, points to, actually it was Brad Huggins who pointed out a book to me uh, yesterday, a book called Halftime by Bob Buford. And it's, uh, a, the halftime is kind of, I, we would call it midlife, right? So you get to the middle of your life. 
And Bob Buford says in this book that in the first half of life, we tend to obsess over details and try to control things a whole lot more. There's something about getting a little bit older where you realize there's a lot less in my control. I think it starts when your kids become teenagers. And you go like, I don't control as much as I used to think I controlled. But you also try to control your spouse more the, the longer you're married and the older you get. At the beginning, like all those arguments are really about trying to get somebody else to do things your way. And at some point you go like, that's probably not gonna work. And it's really okay if we're different and you kind of back off of that. But there are other areas in which we try to control uh, as well that, be, that we begin to see. And part of it is our health. Uh, so the key question then as we get older when it comes to work is we know there are things outside of our control and probably when you get to midlife you know you kind of are where you are in terms of your career and how much you're going to have say for retirement or whatever you realize okay this is kind of what it is and then you start asking the question why do I work why do I go to work every day what difference am I making and that's a really more powerful question. So am I just working out of fear or worry? Am I working to control others or uh, to control even society? Am I working for recognition? And when I ask the question, why am I working, and especially why am I working so many hours, like who or what am I ignoring while I'm working all of these hours? So the why question is the critical one that the psalmist is asking us. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. So this idea of toiling is a powerful, idea, a powerful word in the psalm because toiling, it's a, in, in some translations it's even why do you eat the bread of sorrows? So the word toil has to do with really difficult hard work that you don't enjoy, right? Why am I doing this? And so the psalm really asks us to probe ourselves, or am I working because it is really a beautiful privilege and a calling from God? And the calling from God can be in whatever area of life, how am I helping others? So to ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing instead of just toiling day after day after day is again where the psalmist is directing our attention. And then there's a point about sleep, that sleep is not just about rest. Sleep is not just about rest. Uh, he grants sleep to those he loves. There are a couple powerful things in this verse here. One is, I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but the, the one he loves is in Hebrew related to a, na a name called Jedidiah. If that doesn't mean anything to you in a moment, it will. So he grants sleep to his beloved, to his cherished one, the one he watches over. But there's another alternate translation for this verse that I think I like better. It's in the New American Standard, if you have that, and a couple of translations. But instead of he grants sleep to those he loves, it could be translated he grants to those he loves in their sleep. So in both cases, it's about God giving the gift of sleep, right? In the first one, it's about the fact that when I go to bed every night, like sleep is a gift from God. Wonderful, amazing point. If I translate it the other way, he gives to those in their sleep, he gives to his beloved in their sleep, it means something a little bit different. It means that you think that all of your waking hours are the times when things are really happening because you're being productive, you're doing something at home or at work or whatever. 
And this is a reminder that even while you're asleep, God is still giving to you. So you may be a 16-hour person, an 18-hour-a-day person, but God is a 24-7 God, and he is giving to you even while you're sleeping. God could have created human beings to not need sleep. I just pause and let that stick in for a moment, because I don't know if you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. If you're a workaholic like me, you probably go like, yeah, that'd be great, right? It can work all the time. But part of the gift of God in sleep is realizing that there's about a third of my life where I literally can't do anything. And it's a real gift from God to know that he keeps giving and that part of the gift to me is the ability to release and let go of what I think I need to do. At the end of the day, I gotta quit. That's a gift from God and he doesn't quit. He still gives to me while I'm sleeping. And speaking of gifts, uh, Wes made this point well with the children, but the lesson about children is they are a gift. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Now that's a wonderful verse. It's even an easy verse for those who have all the children that they want and they're healthy and well. It is a hard verse for those who can't have children and would love to or have lost one or more children. So don't focus so much on the language of heritage or reward. This is poetic language. It's not about like you earn your children. It is rather just the idea that the miracle of a child is something only God can do. Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book on the Psalms of Ascents uh, uh, talks about how the work that produces a child doesn't really feel like work, right? But... Uh, who can actually explain how that act produces a living human being? And this is the wonder of actually birthing children where the mom has ex been experiencing this inside of her for nine months, but that baby comes out, and I've seen so many dads just absolutely mesmerized by looking at, into the eyes of this little one for the first time and experiencing the wonder and going like, this is such a miracle. So the, the idea that we can, that what we do can produce a child is absolutely a wonder. And the psalmist is just reminding us that children are not something you can take credit for. Children are not a right, they're a gift. Not everybody has a child. If you have them, the lesson here is to love them and nurture them and give them all that they need because these children are a gift from God. Which leads us to the last uh, area where this psalm touches our daily life, and that is aging. And my sort of lesson in one line is this, you're going to need help when you get older. You're going to need help. So in the, in the world of the psalmist, that help comes in the form of your children. And so children are a huge blessing because as you get older, the government in his world doesn't have a social safety net. And these are the ones who are going to protect you and provide for you when you get older. So you have to expand that out a little bit uh, and realize that we do have alternate ways of taking care of ourselves and others as we get older. But the bottom line is there's something about getting older that, takes, that reverses the direction. You're right back to where you started and being ex extremely helpless. And some of you experience that daily in your work in so many different ways. So the reminder of the psalm is that God is involved in that too and that God ultimately is the one who gives you provision and protection. 
And so it, in, the, in the, the world of the psalmist, it may have been the children who did that. It may be something else now. But as you old, you become more dependent and not more independent as you get toward the end of life. And God is involved in that as well. So th those are sort of very practical ways in which the psalm touches our lives. But let me bring it back to this particular week. And, and let me point out what um, it's easy to overlook. Paul touched on it just for a moment. But you come right back to the top of the psalm. And it is a psalm of ascents. One of 15, it's the middle one of the 15, whether that has significance or not, I don't know, but one commentator suggests it did. But it's the psalm, it's a psalm of ascents, which means that for Jewish pilgrims, it was more than likely sung while they were heading up to Jerusalem for one of three annual festivals. And again, what I love about that is that they're going up to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice and do all the cool things you can only do in Jerusalem, but the psalm itself reminds them that the world they left behind is still a world in which God is involved in every detail. So you come to church on Sunday morning, and this is kind of your God moments for the week, maybe. Uh, I hope it's not the only one, but like, you know, so God is involved in every moment of your lives. But then Paul also pointed out that this is the only one of the Psalms of Ascent that adds of Solomon. So let's talk about Solomon for a moment. Uh, he was born as the second son of David and Bathsheba. And if you remember that story, the first son died because the son was conceived in, in adultery. And so uh, the original name that David gave to Solomon, do you remember what it was? Jedidiah. So we may have a hint in this psalm of Solomon actually inserting his birth name into the psalm. God gives sleep to Jedidiah. He gives sleep to the one he loves. Sort of a beautiful, touching moment in the psalm. But more importantly, what do you, I'm going to ask you all to do this at once. When I, when I say the word Solomon, what one word comes into your mind? Wisdom. Okay. So I'm going to tell you that if you really understand the story of Solomon, it's a lot about stupidity as well. All right, so you think of Solomon as, we, it's like he's the wisest man that ever lived. You may think of him as wealth. He was perhaps one of the richest men who ever lived. He also expanded the kingdom and the security and peace of Israel in ways unprecedented before that and unparalleled since then. Israel has never been as big or as secure as it was under Solomon. But in order to get there, he had to create a bunch of peace treaties with his neighbors, and oftentimes in his world, that meant marrying the princess of whoever ruled that territory. And so Solomon winds up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Stupidity, all right? And somebody pointed out to me, uh, and that has, I'm not making any comments about women, please. Like, the, I did, to me, the best value you place on a woman is loving one woman that God gave to you, right? So I'm not saying that it's bad because he had a lot of women around him. It was just bad to love, to think he could love all those women. And somebody pointed out to me uh, this week that the Bible only mentions three children that Solomon had. And I'm thinking, how do you have a thousand women in your life and you only wind up with three children? Well, maybe he had more, but they're only three of note. And one of them that became king after him was actually responsible for dividing that kingdom that was the largest it had ever been into two parts and it was never the same again 
from then until now. In fact, those 10 lost tribes are still lost. And Solomon ends up, because of all these women that he loves, also worshiping and loving their gods. And uh, so Solomon starts out well, but he doesn't finish well. Solomon is one you can kind of think about that book halftime and say the first half of his life was wise and the last half was stupid. For a lot of people, it's the other way around, right? So I find myself asking, when did Solomon write this? Did he write it at the beginning of his life? And he's talking about how important it is to entrust God to, to be in control of every part of your life, but then he didn't follow his own advice? Or did he write it at the end of his life when he looked back and he said, you know what, I was born as my father's beloved and I had every reason to put God at the center of my life and instead I didn't do that. And I just want to tell you out of my life experience, unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain when you build it. There's actually a third option that the psalm itself wasn't written by Solomon, it was written about Solomon. So that third option is perfectly uh, legitimate in the original language. So it could be a song about Solomon. And so now we have uh, people coming back uh, for the festivals every year thinking about Solomon's whole story and not just connecting it to wisdom, but connecting it to stupidity and going, you know what the number one lesson of Solomon's life is? It's that God is in every detail of your life. And if you don't bring him, integrate him into every detail of your life, then you're going to wind up like Solomon did. So whichever one it is, the bottom line is that for you and me, uh, the lesson is to let go of the reins of our life and trust God to be in control of our projects, of our security, of our children, of our work, of our aging, of every part of our lives that has to be integrated with God. So here's your assignment for Thanksgiving week. There are six weekdays ahead of us. The fourth one is uh, Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Why not take one of these um, areas every day and just journal about it. And think about Thanksgiving, first of all. In this area of my life, what has happened that I absolutely have to say God did that? I thought I was working so hard, putting all the details together, but now that I look back, you know, that was a God thing. So uh, if you didn't write them down before, think through them again. So it's projects, my projects, my security, my work, my sleep, my children, and my aging. Getting older, right, is a gift from God. So write, take one a day, and then journal what you're grateful for, but also journal how you are bringing God into the middle of that part of your life. Have I sort of forgotten the God factor? There's a great quote in your bulletin on the left-hand side, above the order of worship inside, from Eugene Peterson that says, the main difference between Christians and others is that we take God seriously and they do not. I wish that were an absolute statement because there are a heck of a lot of Christians who don't take God very seriously at all. We call them practical atheists. We call us practical atheists when we don't do that. But really journal through each one of those areas and say, how is God being brought? How am I taking God seriously in the middle of that? Where am I trusting him? Where am I letting go of things? Where am I realizing that anything good that happens here or will happen is something I need God for? Where am I depending fully on him and trusting in him? Let's pray together. Lord, in Jesus Christ, we are all Jedediah. We are beloved. 
and you give good gifts to us. You give us the ability to accomplish. You give us the ability to work. You give us the ability to bring children into the world and to love them. You give us sleep and keep giving in our sleep. And you give us the ability to age so that in that process we realize with our increasing helplessness that um, that too is a gift of God to be completely dependent on you and others. So we thank you for these good gifts that you give us in our daily climb. And this week, may we be so deeply aware of your constant activity on our behalf and so deeply humbled and committed to let you direct and guide in a fresh way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.